The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. So our Christmas series this year, uh uh-oh, I didn't do it. It's uh, the wonder of Christmas, and today we're talking about hope. And and don't you love what Ed did? He put these lights all around here with these beautiful words, love and peace and joy and hope. And those are the themes we're going to be looking at through this uh, Advent series. Today, uh, I've entitled these thoughts, Our Awesome Hope in Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about the hope specifically that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. I noticed in studying this week that the, the verb to come or the verb to come, is found 1,470 times in the Bible. It's one of the most important words of the gospel because we don't have to get our act together and then come. We, we just come and, and follow him, and that's what Jesus said in the gospel of Mark. And Advent is that time when we celebrate that the Lord Jesus has come, and we're in such desperate need for a Savior. I think one of the Christmas carols that says this the best It's an old Christmas carol. This was written in the ninth century. That's how long ago these words were written. And and they are very well written, and they are very well focused on different titles for the Lord Jesus. We don't have time to look at the whole hymn. But O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. There's certain truth about the song that resonates with our desperate need for a Savior, you know? And, and this from Malachi, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. It's rather interesting that this song meant a lot to believers during the Dark Ages. And that kind of makes sense, that they were singing this all the way back into the Dark Ages, which isn't 1970, as some of you might think. <laughs> but uh, the, there was, it was translated into English by a very obscure man who uh, was criticized because he believed the gospel so strongly that they sent him to a little island off the coast of Africa, And while he was there, he took the Latin and translated it into English for us. Well, we're talking about hope today. And here's a little definition of hope, kind of from Webster's Dictionary. Hope is more than wishful thinking. It is a blend of optimism and willpower. One psychologist um, came up with the idea, Charles Snyder is his name, of hope theory. And... um, He says that this positive psychology is the scientific study of what makes life worth living. The branch of psychology focuses on developing strengths and positive traits rather than healing weaknesses or disease. According to the hope theory, hope has three distinct parts. Goals. Having a goal is the cornerstone of hope. Goals can be big or small. You have a goal to go to college or to begin practicing yoga, for example. It has agency, willpower. Agency is the ability to stay motivated to meet your goal. It involves believing that good things will come from your actions. And then pathways. These are the specific routes you develop to meet your goals. 
If your first pathway doesn't work, you're problem solved to find a new pathway. High hope people understand that roadblocks are inevitable and that it might take several tries to reach your goals. Is hope only an emotion, you might ask? Well, while hope does involve emotions, hope itself is not an emotion. Hope is a way of thinking or a state of being. This means that hope can be taught, according to psychology. Hope is also distinct from a wish. Hope involves taking action toward a goal while a wish is out of your control. For instance, if you're at a restaurant and you say, I hope my food comes out hot, that's actually a wish because you have no control over it. Hope is found in the incarnate one who was laid in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. I say that without any apology. I say that with deep conviction that the essence of our hope at Christmas or any other time is in Jesus Christ. There's a video that we want you to see today and I'm going to encourage you to look at this video and it tells us the story of hope. So, I have this serious problem with Christmas presents. Don't worry, no soapbox is here. No, see, the problem is actually with me. I hint at the gifts, you know? I spill the beans and I ruin the surprise every year. But I can't help it. I love it so much. Mommy, I need you! I'm coming, sweetie! Spoiling the surprise kind of reminds me how God works. He likes to hint at big things. Like the way he hinted about that very first Christmas gift. All those years ago. The Lord himself shall give you a sign, and the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Yeah, he was preparing the gift, all right. God packed up the greatest gift that the world had ever seen. Not even he could keep it to himself. He gets me. And God didn't just let the surprise slip once. No, he let the cat out of the bag nearly 300 times in the Old Testament. We call them prophecies. But here's the big difference between God's prophecies and just spoiling a surprise. One is giving the gift early, but you don't get to open it. And the other is God giving us a gift of hope while we wait for Jesus to come. <laughs> Do you see it? He wasn't telling us a secret. He was making us a promise. Because we humans, three chapters into the creation story, we managed to mess it all up. Yeah, we needed saving. Desperately. So, God kept sending us hope through his prophets and messengers. And that hope was the gift of his son, the Messiah. And there will never be greater gift than Jesus. 
And the cool thing is that hope isn't over. He promises to come again and take us all home. So the gift is just right there. The question is, will you accept it? Let's visit again what happened in the garden. You remember the fall when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's word, disobeyed God, and as a result, spiritually died and needed rescue. And right in Genesis 3.15, the Lord says to Satan, I will put enmity, aggression, warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head <laughs> and you will strike his heel. And certainly Satan did strike the heel of our Savior. But the Lord Jesus Christ crushed the enemy and all his lies. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, Jesus said. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And again, 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's why I say without any apology, our hope is in Jesus Christ. Now, today, let's celebrate the distinctives of our hope in Jesus Christ. And I've selected five. I could have come up with more, but you're glad I didn't, I know. And we're going to cover them kind of quickly. But these are really precious, precious nuggets of truth. Our hope is theological. All right? It's theological. Take, for example, Psalm 131, a song of David, a song that they sang as they were going to the temple in Jerusalem. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. He confesses his humility, David does, in his heart, in his eyes, and in his thoughts. And I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Get that picture. We all kind of know what an unweaned child is like. As soon as they get near mommy, they got one thought. Dinner, lunch, breakfast, whatever. Right? But a weaned child has learned <coughs> to rejoice in the presence of mommy without having any food, without having any of my needs met, but just celebrating the relationship, celebrating that this is my mom. And so that's why David uses this picture and says, I'm content. And then he concludes this little psalm, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. See, put your hope in the Lord. It's theological. The Old Testament most assuredly tells us this. There are other places, five times actually, in the book of Psalms, we are told, put your hope in the Lord. Psalm 31, 24, David talks about personally, God is his refuge, and then he says, put your hope in the Lord. In Psalm 37, there's the cure for fretting. Do you ever become angry because evil people are getting blessed? They're getting all the breaks? 
Well, that's what the psalmist David was struggling with in Psalm 37. And then he says, put your hope in the Lord. What a cure for being anxious and angry that evil people seem to be succeeding. Psalm 130 says the same thing. The psalm just preceding the one that we just read. Again, a song of ascent, and it describes and, and commands us to put our hope in the Lord. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Put your hope in the Lord. Yesterday, no, Friday, Liberty University football team completed a season undefeated. 13 wins in a row. Never been done before at Liberty. They got a beautiful stadium. And this year they're playing for the Conference USA title. The first time they've ever played for a title. They've been independent up until this year. 13 wins in a row. Now, what you don't know about the team is this. In the fall, one of their players committed suicide. It was the most devastating thing. And the team came together and they even were saying, you know, they want him to be remembered. But the coach, when he's interviewed on national TV and they're presenting him with a trophy, Coach Caldwell says, our theme verse, <laughs> it's a Christian university, is Psalm 20 and verse 7. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord. And by the way, we deserve a good bowl game. We've been undefeated. I just celebrated that. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. There is a danger of putting hope in hope. A Plato talks about this and saying that human hope are the projections into the future and it's all subjective. The Stoic philosophers had no time for hope. They, they were too practical-minded. They, they had no time to even talk about the idea of hope. And in modern psychology, some try to do the same thing. Here's a professor from the University of California. While hope may have a special meaning for religious believers in a benevolent God who protects them, the crucial presence of hope is secular and universal. During periods of major turbulence in our lives, hope serves as a personal beacon, much as a lighthouse beacons sailors during periods of darkness and stormy seas. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. It is theological. It is hope in a benevolent personal God who controls all things. If you just have hope and hope, and you hope things get better, you know nothing about tomorrow. You don't even know about the next minute, and I don't either. But when I know a Savior who came to Bethlehem, and that he has control over all things, past, present, and future, hallelujah, I have hope. That's certain hope. That's theological hope. And so Peter writes this. He says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I don't think there's much to say about hope without speaking of God, a personal 
God and Savior. Our hope is also substantial. I love Isaiah 40. It's a wonderful chapter. If you've ever read Isaiah, and I hope you have, 39 chapters of judgment and a lot of darkness. And then you get to chapter 40, and wow, it's like a bright light. In fact, some have said maybe there were two authors. I don't think so. I think there was one, and when they were digging around in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a whole scroll of Isaiah all the way through from chapter 1 to chapter 66. Well, in chapter 40, he says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Hmm. And then he gives the answer. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They have expectation for the future based on the promises of God and they have hope and it strengthens them. How many of us would testify today that hope in Jesus Christ has given us strength? There have been seasons when we felt so weak and so overwhelmed. And so he describes it in rather graphic terms. They'll soar on wings like eagles. Well, I think there's a reason why we picked the eagle to represent our nation, right? I mean, they fly so effortlessly. They're not flapping their wings. They just glide along. That's such a powerful picture. And then there are men, and they run, and they don't grow weary, he says. I can't hardly go up the stairs without getting weary. So, he adds, they will walk and not faint. Whether you're soaring or running or walking, where does your strength come from? Strength from the Lord. is the strength from your hope in the Lord. So wait on Him. Wait on Him. Keep your trust in Him. And hope in Him. Our hope is foundational. Very interesting chapter in Romans, chapter 15. Paul is talking to the, the church there, and he says this, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Endurance, the ability to stand fast, to hang in there, to be steadfast, even in the face of opposition and problems and even problem people, and the encouragement the scriptures provide. You remember this word encouragement. We've looked at it so many times. Sometimes the encouragement is a hug for those who are grieving. It's just a gentle, loving hug. Sometimes it is a pat on the back. You're doing well. Keep it going. And sometimes it's a finger in your chest and says, buddy, you got to straighten up. <laughs> the scriptures do all of that. They give us endurance. They give us encouragement. Why? To what end? 
that we might have hope. So it's foundational. It's based on Scripture. And let's take a moment to think about the prophecies of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Josh McDowell, that great apologist, said this, some skeptics assert that Jesus was able to fulfill all prophecy by simply taking careful, deliberate action. In other words, Jesus checked off a list, much like you and I might check off our to-do list. Interesting idea, but we'd have to admit that many of the details of Jesus' birth and death were entirely beyond human control. Something to consider. So, there's a great mathematician, his name is Peter Stoner. And uh, he taught at uh, Pasadena Community College, and then he taught at Westmont, which is a Christian university. So he, he sat down and he goes, okay, so what's the probabil probability of one person being born in Bethlehem in the first century? And it's one in 300,000, which is, you know, that's a, that's a pretty strong uh, probability. Well, then he went further and he said, let's look at eight specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Okay, and these are the eight. Born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Preceded by a forerunner, Malachi 3.1. Entered Jerusalem as king, riding a colt, Zechariah 9.9. Betrayed by one of his closest friends, Zechariah 13.9. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12. Those pieces of silver thrown at the temple, Zechariah 11.13. Arrested and condemned without any defense. With, there's no defense made. And he's silent, Isaiah 53.7. And at death, his hands and feet are pierced, Psalm 22.16. What is the probability that one person would fulfill those eight prophecies in their lifetime? 1 times 10 to the 17th power. Count them, 17 zeros. 1 to 10 to the 17th power. Okay, so Dr. Stoner, what, what, how can we picture this? Well, take an area of the size of Texas. Thank you, Lanier's. They're from Texas. You know, there's a lot of Texans around here. Anyway, an area, Texas is a huge state. Take the area of Texas, all right? Fill it with silver dollars, about that big, right? Silver dollars, two feet deep, two feet deep. Mark one coin, just one, of all those coins in that big area and send a man in blindfold to pick, pick it on the first try. That's the probability, one times 10 to the 17th power. And Jesus fulfilled many more than eight prophecies. And that's why when you logically and scientifically analyze this, you got to say, well, I need to put my hope in him. He fulfilled this. Our help is built on the prophetic history. God spoke for hundreds of years prior to his coming. And there's more things that he will fulfill in his second coming. And sometimes the prophecies are put right alongside of each other. Have you noticed that? Like Isaiah 9, a child will be born, a son will be given. That sounds like the birth, and it is. And, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, and Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, right? And those things. And the government will be on his shoulder, and he's going to reign forever. So let me explain it this way. If you walk out of the sanctuary today, and you look to the west, what will you see? Mountains. Basically, you'll see mountain peaks, right? So if you look, you'll see a peak, 
And then you'll see another peak. But you can't tell the distance between the peaks. And when God was revealing these truths about his son to the prophets, they could see the peaks. They couldn't see the distance between the peaks. So they'll put a prophecy of his first coming right along the side of a prophecy of his second coming. And it's all God speaking and revealing his truth because our hope is foundational. It's built on the truth of the scripture. It's also ontological. Our hope is ontological. It's based on reality. It's based on the reality of the history of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Hallelujah, a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. A living hope. Our hope is alive as long as Jesus is alive. And he rose from the dead and proved his victory over sin and death. He's forever alive, so our hope is forever alive. It will never die. Be a sad day if you say, my hope died. Never will die. It's ontological. It's based on reality. And we're safe and protected by the Almighty. And he's protecting our inheritance. The Almighty One, the most powerful one in all the universe, is protecting it in the safest place, heaven. This hope will not disappoint. It is living. And finally, our hope is eschatological. See what great love the Father has lavished on us? Don't you love that great love lavished on us? That we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, present tense. And what we will be has not yet been made known, future. But we know that when Christ appears, yet in the future, we shall be like him, hallelujah, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to have a glorified, resurrected human body without sin, without disease, that's fitted to last forever and, by the way, can eat. Some of you are glad to hear that. But imagine it, a glorified, resurrected body promised to us. Our hope is eschatological. And so he says in the next verse, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. It drives us to want to live for God. It drives us to want to live holy lives separated from sin. Sin only brings death and disease and destruction. We don't want any of that. We want to live holy lives. And that's what motivates us. John Wesley said it well, regeneration is the gateway to sanctification. That's just as simple as what it is. So, hope provides a haven from pessimism, fear, and dread. It galvanizes our courage and mobilizes our energy and vitality. It enhances our mood and focuses our creative thinking. Hope also contributes to our propensity to help others who are in distress, including strangers as well as loved ones. Heroism is frequently spawned by the presence of hope during times of danger and destitution. It is one of the great human motivators engendering a sense of purpose and aspiration during desperate times. And our hope is in Jesus Christ.
It's all these distinctives and many more. Theological, substantial, foundational, ontological, eschatological. There are many people in this world who are without God and without hope. And they grieve without hope. And we have the answer. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who we celebrate at Christmas in his birth, coming as the hope for the whole universe. Let me close with this great verse from Romans 8. For in this we hope, in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And that's the place where we are today. It's a certain hope, but it's still unseen. Remember last week? Faith is the assurance of things that we've hoped for and the certainty of things that we haven't yet seen. But that's how faith and hope are linked together. And it's in this hope that we are saved. So I want to conclude with a little picture for you. I want you to take those things that are driving you crazy right now. I want you to think about some of those heartaches, some of that suffering, some of the questioning and doubts that, that you are wrestling with. And you don't need to tell anybody else right now. I want you to talk to the Lord about it. And I want you to take that struggle and I want you to put it in the empty manger that's pictured, right? Just recognizing that, you know what? The solution for this distress is hope in Christ, hope in the Savior who came. So just quietly while you're here, will you, will you please just, just take a moment now quietly and I don't know what's stressing you out. I don't know what's causing you anxiety. And if you're here without any anxiety, I want to talk to you afterwards because I think we all struggle with this. We live in a fallen world and, we're, and our hope is attacked all the time, but we have a certain hope. And so I want you just in your mind's eye now to take that issue, that person, that situation, whatever it might be, and quietly and prayerfully just put it in the manger. Confess afresh. Lord, I'm going to help hope in you on this. Confess that you don't have any means to remedy. You need a Savior who is your refuge. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.